Hello there, my name is Skipper Melody and you're listening to D&D, a Stranger Things podcast. Join me as we go through Hawkins, Indiana and the Upside Down to uncover clues and mysteries that are abound. From Egos to Hawaiian pizza, this podcast is something you don't want to miss. So thank you for listening and let's dissect and discuss Stranger Things. We are back for another episode of D&D, a Stranger Things podcast. Thank you guys for coming back. Since we already got the first episode done, I'm just going to go over the main points again. First, we're going to have our Nancy Wheeler deep dive continued with our Erica Sinclair character ratings. Then we're going to have Martin Brenner's Things to Remember for those of you who are watching Stranger Things for the first time and just coming along with me to keep up. And then for the ones who have seen all of Stranger Things, we will do Murray Bauman's Peek Behind the Curtain. Now, again, if you haven't watched all of Stranger Things, that section will have nothing to do with anything else that is discussed on the podcast, but it is there for you if you want to come back. So today we are going to be reviewing Stranger Things Chapter 2, The Weirdo on Maple Street. We're finally back at Maple Street, guys. We're here. We're at Nancy Wheeler's directions for Steve. So without further ado, here is Nancy Wheeler's deep dive. I have a lead. They said they wanted proof, right? So let's give it to them. You're relentless, you know that? I just look forward to you never doubting me again. So we're back at the Wheeler house, still storming on the night of November 7th. I'm still floored that they kept the storm throughout all of this. It's great. Uh, We see the kids in Mike's basement. And all of them are drenched, of course, because they were out in the rain like idiots. Ella shivering on the couch in Mike's jacket, meaning that Mike gave her his jacket at some point. And I think that's really cute. Karen raised him well. Dustin asks her if she has cancer because of her shaved head. Lucas points out, is that blood? And tries to reach his hand out towards her and Mike smacks it away, which is really funny. Dustin says, I bet she's deaf, and then, and then decides, not deaf. The, these are just great lines to open the episode. That's why I'm quoting them. I think that Stranger Things has amazing script writing. I touched on it a bit in the last episode, but I just think everything they do is amazing with their script writing, and this is just kids being kids, and I like it. So Mike is defending Eleven already to the other kids, with the swatting his hand away, he's like, hey, you're scaring her, stop. He ends up going over and gives her the sweats combo that he was wearing yesterday, the blue sweatshirt and the gray sweatpants. I know I told you guys to remember that sweatshirt combo from last week's episode. The reason why is because I wasn't sure if Karen had cleaned them for Eleven. Apparently she did because Mike says that they're clean. And Eleven, like, feels them on her face and doesn't turn up her nose at them, so I'm guessing they don't smell. So, I guess Karen did the laundry, which, good job, Karen. Karen's getting bonus points this episode. Like I said, Elle feels the clothes and decides that she's okay with firing them and starts reaching for the hem of her shirt to pull up over her head. All the boys freak out about this, and especially Dustin. He hyperfixates on that point alone for the rest of the episode. Mike leads her over to the bathroom and points it out to her and says, Privacy. Get it? And it's, again, I love the script writing. That's why I'm pointing out the quotes. 
there's a lot of great quotes from season one, and I think that's one of them. So Mike tries to close the door behind Eleven, and Eleven reaches out her hand to stop the door and says, no. Now, with Eleven, I'm beginning to notice that she does not speak unless she needs to. Eleven resembles a lot of toddlers when they're raised in a house that has a lot of kids or very attentive parents. Some kids won't start speaking until they're older because everyone just kind of assumes what they want and gives it to them immediately so they don't need to speak. Eleven is resembling a lot of those traits in her speech methods and so she's only speaking when something is very important and she can tell I'm not going to get my way unless I say something. So when Mike tries to close the bathroom door and she says no, that means that Eleven really does not want that door shut. And obviously we're going to figure this out later in the episode, but it's something to notice. So Lucas, Dustin, and Mike are all talking to each other about what's going on and trying to figure out what to do with her. Dustin is very hesitant of Mike letting her stay at the house because she tried to take off her shirt, again, just hyperfixating on it. Lucas mentions that she came from a nut house, and Dustin later on says something about, oh, like Michael Myers, and it's, it's just a fun reference to that horror movie, which obviously would have been out at this time, and the kids probably would have liked it. All the kids decide to keep Eleven a secret because if they find out about Eleven and how they found Eleven, then they'll find out that they were hunting for Will. So because they don't want to get in trouble and banned from hunting for Will, they can't say anything directly about Eleven. So they plan for Eleven to knock on the front door. That way Karen can answer, tell Karen she's in trouble, and Karen will call someone and that Karen will know what to do, and Mike just completely trusts this, which of course, he's a child. Of course he's gonna trust that his mother knows what to do. So Mike is kind of putting Eleven to bed at this point, and Lucas and Dustin leave. Uh, Lucas says that he wouldn't want her in his house. The entire idea of building a fort is a very nostalgic thing. My brother used to make forts in the basement all the time, and we would try to sleep in them, so that entire thing is really cute. Mike asks her for her name, and she, again, instead of saying it, she just puts out her wrist and shows her tattoo. And Mike thinks that it's really cool that she has a tattoo, which is the first time that Elle probably gets complimented on that. And Mike ends up giving Eleven the nickname of Elle, which is what I've been calling her. So there you go. Eleven does say Night Mike, which is a really cute, just like, social thing that she's picked up on, because he says Night Owl, she says Night Mike, so obviously she thought it important to say, and then she cries herself to sleep. She's had a really long day. She had someone die in front of her that she was probably starting to care about, and she killed two people, so yeah. I'd cry myself to sleep too, bud. Okay, next up is the title sequence. Don't really need to talk about that. But 
The morning of November 8th at the buyer's house, there's an electrician working outside, which is continuity from the power outages they were talking about on the news. Uh, Joyce is stressed and frantic about getting the pictures for Will. Obviously, like, your kid is missing. You don't know where he is. I'd be stressed and frantic, too. But Jonathan is being forced to be the strong one in this situation, which is really crappy because that's his younger brother. And yeah, I I would, I thought Joyce had apologized to Jonathan earlier and it just doesn't seem like that took. So here we are. Hopper arrives and Joyce shows him the phone that was fried from the storm. Hopper agrees that it's weird and I, I said that that would have been a perfect place to say that it was strange. He could have said, yeah, it's strange. And I would have laughed my head off. But unfortunately, he says weird. Another thing is that Hopper only arrives because Joyce actually called the police station for this. That's important to remember. She's been waiting at the house for an hour. And he finally came in. He had like a long search party walk the night before. So that's why he was late. Hopper tries to tell Joyce that the breathing was probably just a prank caller. And Joyce says, don't you think I know the sound of my own son's breathing? Wouldn't you know your own daughter's? Which from the last episode, we learned that Hopper's daughter is dead and that he probably doesn't feel super great about that. And so Hopper kind of puts up this wall visually. The actor for him, I'm blanking on his name right now, David Harbour, is really great in this scene where you can see that wall go up and he kind of walks away to make sure that he doesn't blow up with Joyce because obviously Joyce is going through something, she's gonna be saying stuff. So Hopper walks away and then deflects the conversation to ask if she's gotten into contact with Lonnie, her ex-husband, to see if Will ended up there. Joyce says no and Hopper is like, fine, well, I guess I'm gonna have to go out to see him. Jonathan follows Hopper outside and offers to go instead because, again, Lonnie would probably talk to him before he talked to cops. Hopper tells Jonathan to stay with Joyce because Joyce needs him. Again, just putting pressure on Jonathan in an already high-pressure situation. Okay, next we're at the Wheeler's house. Mike is eating really quickly and Nancy calls him gross or disgusting or something like that. And Mike just looks over at her and says, you get a lot of studying done last night? So Nancy realizes that Mike saw Steve somehow and they start kicking each other under the table. Karen asks what's going on between them and both of them say nothing, which is very fun. A lot of siblings have an agreement that unless it's a serious thing, they're not going to tell their parents what's happening. In this case, uh, Nancy does not want Karen knowing that Steve was over, and Mike does not want Karen knowing that he went out last night against her wishes. So both of them have something that they don't want to tell Karen, and that really shows in the fact that both of them are not bringing up this fight to her. So Mike ends up finishing his breakfast early, goes downstairs with some egos for Eleven. He tells Eleven to go upstairs to knock on the door to follow the boy's plans, and Eleven says that she doesn't want Karen to call anyone, specifically call, because if you remember the last 
episode, we learned that the lab can trace any call. So of course, Eleven doesn't want any information being given across phone lines. She tells Mike that it's because bad people are looking for her and does this really creepy like gun motion to her head and then his head and then says understand so she is very like I need to stay hidden nobody can know about me I'm not doing what you're saying or else we're all gonna get killed that's kind of the sum of that next scene we have the lab just to reinforce the don't call anyone Joyce's police call from the hour ago for Hopper was overheard and they're showing it to Martin Brenner Apparently her house is less than two miles away. So the monster that escaped from Hawkins lab and it was traveling. Obviously it can't travel that far. It probably doesn't know its surroundings super well. So less than two miles away, not a long walk. And honestly, there was that fence, the foreshadowing fence that had the warning sign on it. And I would bet there's like a two mile radius around Hawkins lab as is. So not exactly shocked, but I just think it's important to know the monster is not getting that far out from Hawkins lab to make his attacks. Anyway, another thing I wanted to ask real quick, how did Joyce even make the call to the police station? Because her phone was fried and that was what she wanted Hopper to inspect. Do they have another phone? How did she call? Because the phone's broken. The phone is broken. How? I'm not sure. I'm really confused by this. We're gonna keep on going. There is a exposition scene with Hopper and Callahan and basically the entire search party for Will. They're still going through the woods. We get exposition about how a lot of members of the town think that Joyce leans on the side of crazy. And then they do hint about a past relationship with Joyce and Hopper. So any kind of relationship that they might have had in their formative years, maybe in high school, but it is brought up in this episode so we can kind of think about that as we see their interactions moving forward. Next we go to the high school where Nancy is trying to do her flashcards with Barb. Steve comes running up behind them, takes the flashcards, goes through them, and kind of makes fun of Nancy for still studying, but the way that Joe Curie delivers his lines here, I genuinely believe that Steve believes that Nancy will pass her test. Like, I think that Steve genuinely is like, Nancy, you've got this. Like, you're gonna be fine. And I think that's really encouraging and really cute. He tells Nancy that his parents are not going to be home and that he's throwing a party which Nancy kind of laughs it off and says, um, but today's Tuesday, which Tommy and Carol make fun of her for. But I actually did check the calendar and in 1983, November 8th did fall on a Tuesday. So really cool real life parallel there. I'm glad that the Duffer brothers paid attention to that. Nancy doesn't really agree or anything because Jonathan ends up entering into the hall. Tommy H says that Jonathan probably killed Will and I think calls Jonathan a freak. Jonathan is not well liked in the high school is what I'm getting at. He is kind of an outcast. Nancy, despite this, still goes up to him to make sure that he's okay and just check up on him. She has a really funny line where she says that everyone's thinking about you. It's funny because it's like, you can say 
a lie. You can say a lie in this moment, which she did. But the way she says it and the way she thinks about saying it, she's saying the truth that they are thinking about him, just not how they're thinking about him. She also has this really nice line where she says, I'm sure he's fine. He's a smart kid. Which in the last episode, Dustin mentions that she dressed up for their Elven campaign. So if these kids have been friends for a long time and Nancy has been involved with the kids, I'm sure there's been times where Nancy and Jonathan have hung out before and have had to interact before. But it just shows that Nancy does know Will and does care about Will and wants to make sure that Will's family is getting through this okay. Over the speaker, we get an announcement that says that there will be an assembly at 8 o'clock for Will and that signups for search parties are still in the front office. Back to the Wheeler house, Mike has skipped school and goes back home to kind of hang out with Eleven. He is bragging to Eleven about his TV and the lazy boy in their house. It's very much middle school boy trying to look good in front of this new girl. Eleven sees the family photos and calls Nancy pretty, which establishes the fact that Eleven knows what pretty things are, which is cool. Mike has a really cute moment where he asks Eleven to trust him with the lazy boy, which has got to be hard for Eleven. But I think Eleven at this point understands there's not really any danger here. And I'm most likely safe with him. Like, this chair probably won't kill me. So it's the first time, maybe not the first time, but one of the first that we're seeing Eleven trust Mike, which is really cute. Next, we have a scene with Jonathan where he is driving in his car. There is a song by The Clash that comes on called Should I Stay or Should I Go? For long time Stranger Things watchers, you know this song comes back a lot, but... This is the first time we hear it. So the song comes on and we get a flashback to a scene of Jonathan and Will on the bed. Joyce can be heard from outside yelling at Lonnie over the phone because Lonnie is not coming to have his visitation with Will. Lonnie was supposed to pick him up to spend time with him and he didn't come. So Joyce is yelling. Jonathan comes over to close the door and Will is kind of upset that Lonnie is not going to be coming, but also kind of relieved because Lonnie never does anything that Will wants to do. He only does things like take him to baseball games, and that's just not Will. In this scene, we can already tell that Jonathan is over his dad, which is interesting because Will's not. So Jonathan has already seen, like, no, Lonnie sucks. Like, I hate him. And is just kind of like, yeah, I'm glad he's gone, but He's still nice to Will and respecting Will's feelings. There's a really great line where Jonathan says, you shouldn't like things because others tell you you have to, which is something that I've always stood by in my life. I do not like things because other people tell me to. Case in point, High School Musical, it's a bad movie. It's a bad franchise. Camp Rock is better. I just want you all to know that. High School Musical is not as good as you guys say it is. It's just not. And I will take your emails and you guys yelling at me, but be honest with yourself. It's not good. It's just not. I. It's not. 
But Jonathan tells him this and then realizes that he has been telling Will the entire time what music is good. So he makes sure that Will definitely likes The Clash and that it's not him imposing his will on him. And Will reassures him like, no, this is cool. Which honestly, as a younger sister, you do like everything that your older brother does or listens to or watches. But I mean, older brothers have good taste. They do. So genuinely like, it's great. We go back to the real time and Jonathan leaves Hawkins and that's the end of that scene. We get our first shot of Town Square in the next scene with Joyce driving up to a store called Melvin's. Now, this past summer, I got the amazing opportunity. I said summer. It was in November. I had the amazing opportunity to actually go to this town and see it for myself. This town square is so small. I want you guys to understand. In this show, they make it seem a lot bigger than it actually is. It is tiny. There's also a Waffle House like right outside the border and it's hilarious, but it's really cool. So you have the Melvins, which is actually abandoned. There's nothing there in real life, but the directors of the show obviously rented it out, built it up, whatever, and it was Melvin's. Right next door to it, there's a radio shack, which isn't there anymore. It was. It was there, and then apparently it got bought out, and somebody else, like, painted it, and now it looks dumb. But anyway, as we see shots of the town, I will let you guys know kind of where everything is in relation to it. But right now we have Melvin's and then the Radio Shack next door. So Joyce pulls up to the store in a hurry, goes in, needs to pick up a new phone because she's worried that if Will calls her again, she won't be able to answer. So comes in to pick up a new phone and her boss expects her to immediately pay for it. And she says, I was hoping I could get it in advance. Her boss looks at her and is like, okay, obviously she is tired. Obviously she is worried, frantic. Of course you can get in in advance. Well, apparently he didn't say as long as Joyce wanted. So Joyce said, I was hoping two weeks. And the boss is very hesitant about this. And we get an amazing speech from Joyce where she basically says, I have worked here for so many years. I work weekends, I work nights, I have worked holidays. My boy is missing and I don't know where he is. I have never called off for work once. Please, I need this two weeks in advance. Or she says, I need this phone and I need it two weeks in advance. And the boss is kind of just like, oh crap, I forgot that I have an amazing employee. Yep, works for me and starts writing down her demand. And then she kind of gets like power hungry and also kind of spiteful and says, and pack of camels. And that's really funny. Next up, we go back to the buyer's house. No one is home. Jonathan is gone and Joyce is gone. There's an electrician there that knocks on the door, realizes no one's home, and calls to his team that nobody's home and that they can move in. It wasn't the electrician. It was the lab. The lab is here. They're all in hazmat suits. And Martin Brenner's there, and they come and start inspecting the yard, making sure everything's good. This was obviously from the phone call made by Joyce earlier, so that's kind of what they're inspecting. 
Martin Brenner, because he's a main character and therefore a big part of the plot, goes into the shed to find that there's residue on the paneling. Really weird residue. They don't take the residue. They just, I mean, I'm assuming they take it. I, I don't know. They just look at it really creepily and then we go to the next scene. So next scene, we're back at the Wheeler house and Mike is showing Eleven his toys, which is really cute. There's a Yoda figurine, which Yoda is a small man of many words. Do or do not. There is no try. And he can also use the force, which for the boys, if they ever saw Eleven's powers, they would probably think it was the force. So Yoda and Eleven are kind of resembling in that way. He also shows her Dinosaur Rory, which is really cute. Eleven goes over to his science fair trophies and points out a picture with Will in it and basically nods her head at the fact that she has seen Will. So somehow she knows where Will is and what happened to him. This moment of realization is interrupted when Karen ends up coming home from, I'm guessing, grocery shopping. Uh, Mike tries to go down the stairs to hide Eleven in his basement, but it is too late when Karen comes through the front door. So they run back upstairs. Karen hears them and calls out. Mike answers her and then gets Eleven to hide in his closet. Doesn't give her any time after she goes in to object and just shuts the door on her. So from before, we know that she doesn't like shut doors and Mike just slammed it on her face. She starts having a panic attack and has a flashback to being put in isolation by Martin Brenner. She also calls him Papa, which is really weird. So is Martin Brenner her dad? We don't know. Karen talks to Mike and tells him that she wants him to feel like he can talk to her which is really good. That's good for Karen. Again, Karen's a great mom this season. At least in these first two episodes, I like her. I think she's fine. Great mom. Great mom. Mike is able to go back up to his room and opens his door and sees Eleven like crying on the ground and is like, are you okay? And Eleven nods her head, yes. And then she says, promise. Over to the quarry, we are past exposition scene, and now we are at foreshadowing scene! Yay! Hopper and Callahan are standing on the edge of this cliff, and Callahan is talking about how another person in the town had said that he was able to jump into the quarry. Hopper laughed at that, called that man a liar, and said that anyone who jumps from this cliff into that water hits it like a pound of bricks, and basically dies on impact, which is true. Callahan's an idiot. Hopper knows what's going on. If you jump from a very tall height into a body of water, it does turn into cement. When you hit it, like, you're probably gonna break some bones. It's gonna hurt. Callahan has a really funny reaction to this where he just goes, nah. <laughs> and it's really funny. And I just love Officer Callahan. He's great. Hopper gets a call from Flo to check in on Benny's because apparently there was a call for him to go over there. So they go over to Benny's and they see that Benny has been staged to look like a suicide. Now, 
obviously they don't know that he's been staged, but we do because we saw the last episode, so we can deduct that he has been staged. Hopper looks at it and just sees, oh crap, this guy committed suicide. The officers ask him if he feels at home and like a big city cop again, which is kind of insensitive. And Hopper says that he doesn't because living here, he knows these people. He's friends with these people. And now he feels conflicted because Benny's dead. But Benny was his friend. He knew him. And so it's a lot harder for Hopper to complete his job at this point because he knows these people. Moving away from that emotional weight, Jonathan is at Lonnie's and so obviously he disobeyed Hopper's direction to stay at home. He meets Cynthia, Lonnie's new girlfriend, and pushes past her into the house to start looking for Will. Lonnie comes from another part of the house and like shoves Jonathan against the wall tries to hug him at one point, and Jonathan does not want Lonnie touching him whatsoever. Anytime he does, Jonathan, like, pushes him off. He does not want to be around Lonnie. Over to the Wheeler house, Lucas and Dustin are biking over after school, and Mike tells them that Eleven knows who Will was. Lucas tries to get Eleven to tell them where he is, kind of scares her, Mike defends her, they're fighting, whatever. Lucas says that he's gonna go tell Mike's mom about Eleven and starts going towards the door, and Eleven slams the door shut right in front of him. And we have this really great moment where, like, the shot of the door closing also has the figurine of Yoda, so it's like she's using the force, but obviously it's not the force here because this isn't Star Wars. But um, Lucas tries to keep on opening the door and Eleven keeps on shutting it. When Lucas turns around, we see that Eleven has a bloody nose. So we can see from that that it takes some strain for her to use her powers. And she tells Lucas, no. And that's that. When a girl says no, she means no. And Eleven means no. Back to Lonnie's. Lonnie says that the cops did come and he told them what he's saying now that Will isn't here. So Jonathan is not able to find Will. Lonnie tells Jonathan that he should move out into the city to experience real life, but only says that after talking crap about Jonathan's hometown, Jonathan's brother, and Jonathan's mother, and the chief of police. So he completely insults everything in Jonathan's life and then says that he should move out to live closer to him, which is just crap. Like, Lonnie, what are you doing? He also says something about how Joyce has some fine parenting, which like, at least she's there, Lonnie. At least she's there raising her kids the best she can. You left, so I don't want you to talk about fine parenting because you honestly suck. To the police station, they are trying to get an idea of what happened with Benny, so they bring over Earl from the last episode, who was actually in the restaurant when Eleven had come in to take the fries. So they're talking to Earl, they're trying to figure out like, hey, has Benny shown any signs of depression or anything like that? And Earl marks on the fact that Benny and the boys had some plans to go out fishing and that Benny was really excited about it. They had plans for the future, which 
for somebody who's committing suicide, usually they wouldn't have these plans for the future. What Usually they wouldn't say that they're coming to them just to maintain expectations, or at least they wouldn't be thrilled about going to them. So Earl mentions that something else happened at the lunch yesterday where Eleven had come in to steal the food. Obviously, he doesn't know Eleven, but says that there was a boy because of the shaved head that came in to steal food from Benny. Hopper has Callahan go and get a poster of Will and brings it over. Tells Earl, like, was it this kid? Earl looks at it and says, no, no, that's not him. That's Lonnie's missing kid. Interesting that he says Lonnie because Lonnie hasn't been there. So it's obviously we don't want to deep dive into Earl that much, but the fact that he says Lonnie's means that he either has more respect for the father versus the mother in a parenting relationship, or he sided with Lonnie instead of Joyce on the side of the divorce. I don't think that Earl has any communication with Lonnie at this point, but it's, it's an interesting choice of word to say Lonnie's missing kid instead of Joyce. And we can even see Hopper react to that, where he kind of looks like frustrated for a second. He doesn't try to correct him or anything. He just says like, fine, Lonnie's, Lonnie's kid, whatever. Now, Hopper leads Earl into confirming that this kid could have been Will, which as a police officer is not something you should be doing, or if you want to do it, at least split up your resources to be continuing searching for Will on this path, but also searching for Will on Eleven's path, because now what you're going to be doing is searching for Eleven, and Will is going to be stuck wherever he is for longer because you're not doing what you should be doing. Anyway. Back to the Wheeler house, we have Nancy laying on her bed, talking to Barb over the phone, telling her to come to the party with her tonight. Barb does not want to go. Nancy wants her to go and says for Barb to pick her up in an hour. All the boys have stayed over for dinner and Dustin and Lucas are not eating because they're nervous about Eleven being in the house. Mike is obviously a better liar than these two, but Dustin and Lucas are just being real sketch. Nancy uses the assembly that was mentioned on the speakers earlier as an excuse to go to the party. Karen says yes, but that Nancy has to be home by 10. Eleven comes down the stairs for whatever reason she has decided to and makes a noise, which Karen kind of looks over for. And then Dustin like pounds his fists on the table which scares their younger sister, Holly, makes Nancy really confused, makes Karen really confused, and Lucas and Mike just look exasperated, and Dustin says that it was a spasm. Okay, now we're back to a search party in the woods. Again, we're at the night of November 8th. Mr. Clark calls through his whistle that he has found something and shows Hopper a piece of a ripped hospital gown that was found on like this pipe coming from underground. It's not a pipe, it's bigger than a pipe. What is this called, drain tunnel? Let me know what it's actually called. I'm not sure, I should have looked that up. But it's really great. It shows that Mr. Clark is still caring, still going with the search parties. 
but the ripped hospital gown, if you remember from the last episode, Eleven, her hospital gown actually had a tear on the end of it. So the fact that the police were able to find it before the lab did is very, I don't know if it's telling at all, but they found it and obviously they think it's for Will, but again, it's a diversion to Eleven. Over to the Wheeler house, we're downstairs in the basement, they're talking to Eleven and they're talking about trying to find a will. They explain the concept of a friend because Eleven does not know what those are. Lucas explains the concept of a spit swear that friends do and spits on his hand and shakes Dustin's hand and Dustin just looks so disgusted and like it focuses back on Mike for Mike to keep on talking but if you look in the background you can see Dustin like look at his hand and like wipe it on his pants and it's really funny. Mike says that friends tell each other things that parents don't know which is apparently the most important part of being friends and is a real common case of being friends. Friends tell each other things that parents don't know. That yes that's why we have other social interactions. It makes sense. Okay we're in the car going over to Steve's house with Nancy and Barb. Nancy tells Barb to pull over three blocks away so that no one can catch on that they are there. Nancy, I honestly do not think anyone's going to care that much. And I would be a little more nervous if I saw you and Barb walking down the street to Steve's house. That seems more sketch than just going to his house. I don't think anyone would care. I really don't. Anyway, Barb thinks that Steve just wants to sleep with Nancy, which from the last episode, I'm inclined to think the same thing. Because Steve tried to do like strip poker with Nancy while they were studying, whatever. Nancy goes to change her top for this party and Barb sees that she got a new bra. Nancy denies this, but you know, I, I'm inclined to believe Barb on that. We have a really great moment where they knock on the door and it opens and it shows Steve and it's playing Raise a Little Hell. So much fun. I, I don't know why I love that music choice so much, but I do. I think it's great. We have a flash over to Hopper's cabin. He has had a girl over for the night. Good on you, Hopper. The girl goes out to the porch to see Hopper taking a break to have a smoke and asks him to come inside. He mentions something that he feels cursed with the last missing kid being in 25 and the last suicide being in 61, which is just really sad. It's cool to see that this is weighing down on Hop, especially from the last episode. He seemed like a lot of things were beneath him and that he didn't care, but he does care. And this is really hurting him. Over to the Wheeler's house, Eleven is using her powers to try to find out where Will is, or at least to explain to the boys where he is. So she sits down at the table with the still set up D&D board that the boys are playing on in the first episode. She's able to pick out Will's figure amongst the rest. So somehow she has used her powers and has deduced that this is Will's figurine. Picks that up brings it over to like her little corner of the table, swipes out all of the other players, turns the board upside down and places Will on the board with the Demogorgon. 
figurine. So Will is in a place that nobody else is, and there's a monster with him, which we kind of knew already, but it does confirm that Will is alive, or at least what she can tell, he is still alive. Over to Mirkwood, we have another scene with Jonathan. I'm guessing this is Mirkwood because it has the same like uh, warning structure that's up to make sure that nobody goes over there, but obviously it doesn't do anything because everyone is getting over that thing. Also, it's a little thing and people could walk around it. I don't know why they don't, but they keep on just stepping over it. Anyway, Jonathan goes in to start photographing like broken branches, trying to find clues in search of Will. He hears screaming and runs to the left if you're standing on the road of Mirkwood and runs into Steve's backyard. Now, Will ran to the right to make it to his house. So I guess run one way, you go over to Will's, run the other, you go over to Steve's. Steve's house being on the outskirts of town is really interesting to me. I don't know why it's all the way out there because it seems like he comes from a wealthy family. Well, Will definitely doesn't, but it's, it's an interesting comparison to know about. I don't think it matters that much, but still. So he gets over there and the screaming was actually just Carol because Tommy was trying to throw her into the pool. I think they just told Carol's actress to scream as loud as she could in a terrifying manner, but that is not the kind of scream you have when you're trying to be thrown into a pool. Doesn't sit well with me. People scream how you want to scream, but I don't think that's how it's done. So we go from Jonathan's perspective to Nancy. Nancy watches Steve do this weird like chugging thing with a beer can and says, is that supposed to impress me? Uh, Nancy and Steve call each other cliches, which is really funny because up to this point, yeah, their characters are cliches. That's all they are. Very self-aware. Nancy decides that she is not going to be a nerd, prissy, Miss Perfect cliche and starts chugging the beer, which does make her a cliche. Still, anyway, she drinks it. She's able to get it all down. She tells Barb that she should do it. Barb is hesitant, but she eventually tries. She takes the knife to be able to like cut into the metal and ends up cutting her hand, which is really gross and I can never watch it, but it does happen. Barb ends up going inside because there's a lot of blood and so she's gonna wrap it up with a towel. She goes inside, the rest of the party is still outside doing whatever and they all go into the pool. In November, there's another podcast that explain, not explains, they complain about the fact that they are swimming in a pool in the Midwest in November and that it would be cold, which it would. I agree. They all should get hypothermia. But I think Jonathan like takes some pictures while they're doing it because he's, I don't know why he's taking pictures. It's being kind of creepy, but He's doing it. Over at the buyer's house, Joyce, Joyce, Joyce has set up her phone and is sitting with it. She gets a phone call, answers, it's Will again, and Will actually calls her mom before the entire phone gets fried again. Some lights start flickering. Joyce follows them down the hallway because when you're in a thriller TV show, of course you follow lights that are flickering in a hallway. 
and it leads her down to Will's room, where Should I Stay or Should I Go starts playing on his radio. The lights are flickering again, and Joyce believes it to be Will. All the power goes super high, like, starts, I, I don't know how else to say that. All the power goes really high before turning off completely, and I wrote, the wall does not do wall things. So somehow the Demogorgon has manipulated the wall and is about to start coming through and is kind of like pushing against it like it's elastic almost. Uh, it freaks Joyce out like it would anyone and Joyce runs out of the house to start her car. But when she looks back at the house, the lights are flashing again. Should I stay or should I go is playing again. And she decides to go back in the house for Will. For the last setting of the uh, show, we're back at the Harrington house. All of the, well, Tommy H, Carol, Steve, and Nancy are all drying off in the living room and deciding what they're going to do for the rest of the night. Tommy H and Carol decide to go upstairs to Steve's parents' room. Steve tells them that they're in charge of washing the sheets. Steve tells Nancy that they should go get some dry clothes and starts going up to his room. Nancy follows him. Barb, like, tries to stop Nancy, and Nancy has decided at this point, I'm fine. I'm gonna do this. Barb, you can go home. Which, at this point, I don't think Nancy's being a bad friend, but I do think it's kind of rude to tell Barb to go home when Nancy was the one who wanted to go anyway. But it is Barb's car. Like, if it was Nancy who drove them, I think it would be rude. But the fact that Barb drove them, Barb has an easy way out. And Nancy is telling her, like, you can go. It's fine. And honestly, Barb should go. What happens next is Barb's mistake. But Nancy is up in the window of Steve's bedroom and is looking outside. Jonathan is taking pictures of her in the window. I don't know how Nancy doesn't see the flash of his camera. I really don't. The lights outside are not that blinding to not see a camera flash from the bushes. Anyone could see that. I don't know how she doesn't, but whatever. Nancy gives nonverbal consent to Steve, and he takes that as full consent. I would like verbal consent in the future, but we got nonverbal, which is fine. But verbal consent is better. Barb has decided to sit alone by the pool instead of going home, feeling sorry for herself. I guess Barb is trying to be a good friend. Maybe she's just waiting for Nancy and Steve to get done. That way she can drive her home. Good on you, Barb. But like, I would just go home. Like, just go home. So Barb's sitting there. Once again, don't know why Nancy doesn't see Barb sitting there. Like, I feel like Nancy would have seen that, but apparently not. Jonathan does see her. Jonathan takes a picture of her. So as Barb is sitting there, she's kind of like feeling her hand and we see that the blood has already like soaked through most of the cloth that she's wrapped around. And it, like a drop of her blood drops into the pool. All the lights go out around her and the monster, we get our first view of the monster's face, I guess that opens up and that that's the scene we get. Jonathan was reloading his camera, so he did not see the monster come for her. But when he looks up, all the lights are out. Barb's not there. He starts running away. And yeah, Barb's not there. 
John then walks off, the lights come back on, great song starts playing for the credits, and that is the end of Stranger Things Chapter 2. So let's go into Erica Sinclair's character ratings. You bop bass, you're all so nerdy, it makes me physically ill. You long haired freak. Alright, so obviously we have Mike this episode. Mike has kind of turned into a defender of Eleven. That is very much his character here. Kind of like a little golden retriever for her, trying to show off, trying to make sure she's okay, but just being very defensive of her to his friends. Dustin is very much the comic relief with the hyperfixation of the taking off the clothes this episode and then the wiping off his hand from the spitzware. Just very much comic relief. Lucas is suspicious of Eleven. Eleven is still strange. I'm still giving her the strange character mold. Karen is a good mom. I said Karen's a good mom. I might even say she's a great mom. I appreciate her and I love her. Nancy is a cliche. Nancy is still a cliche. That's all her character is right now. That's all she's got. She had like a little bit of sympathy for Jonathan, but just cliche. Barb is now catalyst number two. So we have Will, who has set in motion Joyce's storyline, kind of Jonathan's storyline, the boy's storyline, and Hopper's storyline. But we still need Nancy, Jonathan, and maybe Steve to get into this. So we don't know exactly what's going to cause that, but I'm guessing it's going to be Barb. Hopper is more reserved and serious in this episode. I don't know if he stopped drinking or stopped doing his pills, whatever, but he's definitely a lot more reserved now. Joyce is still a mess, which is fine. But she got a little hope at the end of this episode, so I hope that makes her better in the upcoming episodes. Steve, still a cliche, but with some added family drama. We love a guy with a traumatic background. Not really. I hope that nobody actually has any of this, but we get a line from Tommy that Steve's mother doesn't trust his father because his father is unfaithful. And then his parents are usually gone a lot, so he's able to throw those parties. So we'll we'll get into that more later, but kind of adds some more to his character besides just the cliche. Kind of gives a reason behind the cliche. Jonathan, the freak, but relatable. I think Jonathan right now is one of the most relatable people, especially for an older person watching this show. Because for me, I was somebody who went through school. I wasn't really part of the popular crowd. I didn't want to be part of the popular crowd. I didn't want to like what other people liked. I didn't want to be fake around people. I hate people who are fake. And Jonathan, Jonathan's real. He's real. People don't like him because of that. But he would rather be real then put on a facade, and I respect that. So Jonathan, 10 out of 10 character. Next, let's go into Martin Brenner's Things to Remember. Leave your train station. Stop waiting. Focus. Listen. Remember. Okay, we have a lot of things to go through, so I'm going to try to go through them quick, but things that you should be remembering if this is your first time watching Stranger Things. Eleven uses the word pretty and already knows what a promise is. She doesn't have to have those words explained to her. She already knows what they are. That's 
important just to keep track of what she does know and what she doesn't. There's a radio shack in the town. Remember that. Steve's family has drama with cheating. Cheating is something in his life that he knows about. Remember that. Hopper thinks that he has a curse. That will keep on coming up. Remember that. Will can also manipulate technology. He turns on the radio to do the should I stay or should I go. He manipulates the lamp. Joyce thinking that that is him doing it. It is him doing it. So Will is also able to manipulate this technology from wherever he is. So, so while the monster is doing it unconsciously, like whenever he walks somewhere, it just automatically does it. Will is doing it purposefully. Will's favorite song is Should I Stay or Should I Go? Again, like I said earlier in the episode, it will keep on coming up. If you don't like the song, buckle in because it's going to be used a lot. Jonathan took the photos from that night. Remember that. It's going to come back. Eleven bleeds when she uses her powers. So when she is using her powers to an amount that is harder for her, some of them are really easy. Some of them are harder. And when she does the harder ones, they are exhausting and very taxing on her being. And it causes her to bleed out her nose. So just remember that. Um, was there anything else? I don't think so. So those are things that you need to remember for this episode. Obviously, the things I said to remember from the last episode still apply, unless I mentioned that those were resolved in this episode. But for now, those, along with the things to remember from the last, there you go. Now, next up, we're going to have Murray Bauman's peek behind the curtains. So again, just as a warning, if you have not watched all of Stranger Things, there will be spoilers in this next segment. This segment will not have any weight on anything else discussed in this show. It is just this segment is going to be its own thing. It is, you will not be missing anything, but it will be here for you when you come back. This is just for those of us who have seen Stranger Things and want to talk about it more. So thank you for those of you who are watching Stranger Things along with me. Thank you for coming. I hope to see you next week. But for those of us who have watched it all, let's go peek behind the curtain. They don't spend their lives trying to get a look at what's behind the curtain. <gasps> they like the curtain. This, this would open the curtain and open the curtain behind that curtain. Okay, I don't have a lot here, but I do think that I'm going to be talking a lot. We'll see what happens. I only have three points. So at number one, Lucas's disgust with Eleven in this season is hilarious knowing now that Eleven saves the love of his life in season four, or at least gets her into a coma. I I just think it's funny that he says, like, I wouldn't want her in my house. She's a freak. We shouldn't be protecting her. We should be worrying about Will when he doesn't know how thankful that he's going to be for Eleven later on. I think it's not karma, but irony. It's a lot of irony there. Point number two where Steve's family has history with cheating. I think that's interesting with especially this season and then in season two where it seems like Nancy is cheating on him with Jonathan. Like of course he's going to take that personally and of course he's going to take that as hard as he does because Steve's family has history of cheating and it's probably ruined his family and he's probably dealt with a lot with it. So 
I think that it's important to remember that, to understand Steve's character and to really connect with him on an emotional level. Um, for those people that have had cheating in their family history, it's a, it's taxing. It's taxing on the family. It's very dramatic. So I think that those people can relate with Steve on a deeper level if they acknowledge that more. Point number three is where... So I said, where is Will in relation to the Demogorgon with the last scene with Joyce? So Will, as we know in season four, you have to be like by whatever technology you're messing around with and touching it in order for it to turn on and off. Obviously, this is a little bit easier because this is two days after November 6, 1983, which, as we know in season four, is the time that Stranger Things, or not Stranger Things, the time where the Upside Down lives in. So everything that was in its place is still in its place there. So Will is able to manipulate this radio and he's able to manipulate the lamp. Again, has to be like right by it to be touching it and making sure that everything's on. So then everything turns off and the Demogorgon is coming through the wall. Now I think I can figure this out by the fact that the wall does connect to the outside. So maybe the Demogorgon thinks that all of the sound and commotion is coming from the real world and tries to break a portal through the wall to get into the real world and Will goes to like hide under the bed or something. I don't know, but Will and the Demogorgon are very close together in that scene. And I think it'd be easy for the Demogorgon, like there's a window right on that wall. I think it'd be easy for the Demogorgon to come through the window to attack Will and instead he doesn't and just goes away and Will's able to continue to mess with the lamp and the radio. Ignore the car if you can hear it. So I don't know exactly what's happening there. Obviously it doesn't matter that much. It's probably just plot convenience at that point, but it's interesting. It's interesting to think about and I enjoyed it. So that was the peek beyond the curtain. I really didn't have anything else for that. If any of you have your own things that you want me to mention or talk about in the peek behind the curtain, any theory or anything that you are noticing relates um, from one episode to another, please let me know and I'd be happy to discuss it on here during this segment. Next week, we will be meeting for, let me look this up, totally prepared this. Let me, actually, we're not gonna go to Netflix third episode of Stranger Things. Nope. Um, oh, there we go. Stranger Things chapter three, Holly Jolly. I love that episode. That might be my favorite episode of season one of Stranger Things. So next week we will be there for that. We are now off of Maple Street. Who was the weirdo on Maple Street? Who was? I honestly don't know who the weirdo on Maple Street was. Did I just miss that? Email me if you know who the weirdo on Maple Street was because I have no idea. But yeah, that's that's gonna be it. I'm pretty sure. So thank you for coming. I had a great time with you guys and we will be here next week for Holly Jolly.